Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. Today on Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg, Food Chain Worker Alliance co-directors Suzanne Adley and Sonia Singh discuss how institutions are failing to protect food workers during COVID-19. They also discuss how the Black Lives Matter movement is highlighting racial inequalities in the food system. Suzanne and Sonia outline their policy objectives and talk about how the pandemic might reshape workers' rights long-term. Enjoy the show and enjoy your Labor Day. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, With Labor Day in just a few days, it seemed really more than appropriate to interview the co-directors of one of the most impactful and influential organizations striving for food and farm workers' rights in the United States. Uh, Suzanne Adeli and Sonia Singh are the co-directors at the Food Chain Workers Alliance, which aims to improve wages and working conditions for workers in the food system. Um, These needs uh, of of these kinds of workers have become more apparent uh, and uh, amid COVID-19 for sure, but honestly, these have uh, always been issues that needed a lot more attention and a lot more urgency placed on them. Um, Over the last few months, we've had the honor of interviewing a lot of leaders in in, or in the food and, and, and farm workers sector, uh, interviewing Teresa Romero of the United Farm Workers, Baltimore Velasquez of the Food Labor Organizing Committee, Mark Perone of uh, the United Food and Commercial Workers. And they have really worked to expose so many of the injustices that food and farm workers face in this country. And, and now I, I really can't be more honored to interview both Suzanne and Sonia. The Alliance is an organization that Food Tank uh, and I have personally admired for years. Their past directors, Joanne Lowe and and Jose Olivia, have taught me so much, uh, you know, over the course of the the time they were with the Alliance. Um, The Alliance itself is is a national coalition of 31 worker-based organizations in many sectors of the food chain, including agriculture, processing, selling, and serving food. Its program areas include strategic campaigns, leadership development policy, uh, and standards standards and education and communications. And now, again, I'm really so excited to learn from both Suzanne and Sonia about the direction they're taking the organization and what it's like to organize for change during a global pandemic when we can't all be together in one place. So thanks to you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for Food Tank's support of lifting up these really critical food leader, food worker leader stories and and supporting uh, food workers to have a voice within our broader food movement. We really appreciate that support. Oh, thanks. It's really our honor. (laughs) It's our honor for sure. So before we get into the nitty gritty of all that you both and and your organization have been doing, especially over the last six months, can you give us an overview? I mean, I sort of gave a short description, but maybe both of you can go back and forth about, you know, who you are and why this organization exists. Yeah, I mean, that was a great overview that you that you gave. Um, of the alliance was formed to be uh, a coalition of food worker organizations that spans the food chain. Uh, you you listed um, the sectors that we represent, but essentially we are we exist to be a, a, a voice for food workers, not just in one sector, but looking at uh, from farm workers to processing, distribution, transportation, uh, hospitality. Uh, restaurant, 
and street vending, I think I've got them all, to look at where can we build leverage and power by thinking about the food chain um, as a supply chain. So we know that uh, farm workers are working under really challenging and difficult circumstances. So are retail workers and the connections that we can draw when we're all in a room together in terms of sharing strategies, in terms of looking at the corporate players that are determining conditions across the food chain uh, helps us build better strategies, build solidarity. And ultimately, our, our vision is that we're, we're transforming the food system to be one where food workers have power in their workplaces, have a voice and are, are valued and not disposable um, the way that many of our members describe feeling or being considered right now. Absolutely. Suzanne, I, I don't know if you can talk about this issue of power. Why have, you know, uh, food and farm workers not had the power that they deserve to have when they're, you know, making negotiations with companies or they're trying to, to fight for better workplace conditions? Well, I think that there are like uh, multiple answers to that question, but I, I think that um, kind of a common um, kind of uh, viewpoint that, uh, you know, us and our, our members and our allies have is that, um, you know, we start at the point of um, pointing out that the, the food system in itself is highly exploitative. and um, and that means that um, it is a food system that um, you know, that is driven by profit, um, by driven that pro profit that is um, um, that uh, is exasperated by like continuing sort of like corporate um, consolidation, mm -hmm. um, which leads to uh, as I think. Um, all of us would agree, not just exploitation of labor, but exploitation of land and, 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 um, and you know, our sort of general ecosystem. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, it starts very in many ways there, but it also sort of um, includes uh, many kind of, I think, institutions uh, that are structurally um, discriminatory or racist, and um, uh, for example, are uh, very sort of um, exploitative and abusive immigration system, um, or just sort of uh, kind of a, a history of um, not just in the food economy, but in in, in a history of sort of state corporate sort of collusion in some sure. was to uh, repress the rights of workers and particularly workers of color to be able to assert their rights in uh, different industries in the food economy. And, and I think that we're seeing in this particular era, uh, a, a lot of what those structures are being exposed when in right. hadn't been in um, prior to the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so many cracks have been laid bare. And I think that's, I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. There's no uh, denying that. But a lot of this is coming to light now because of COVID-19 that, it, you know, maybe it wouldn't for a lot of eaters or, or consumers. I'm wondering how we went from this idea, though, of, of workers being expendable because they didn't have power in the workplace or still don't in many cases, obviously, um, to this idea of essential workers now. And but there's no change in, you know, in pay <laughs> or in treatment or those kinds of things. So how how can we 
you know, as, as a, you know, we talk about the food movement, we talk about the agriculture movement, how as a movement of people who are concerned about where their food comes from, who produced it, how folks were treated, how can we get, you know, companies to understand that these workers were never expendable, they were always essential, and that they deserve to be paid and honored and respected in all the ways that other workers do, no matter, you know, their cultural background, the color of their skin, you know, their their gender, how they identify. What are the steps to get there to, to urge companies to do a better job? I'll start by saying that, um, you know, you know, we strive to be uh, a member-driven organization in, in every sort of level of our work. And uh, that means that we actually spend uh, a lot of time with our member organizations. Um, and now we're actually 33 organizations uh, up. Oh, that's great. Um, sort of thinking about, you know, these systems of power and, and how to address them. And, you know, in, in 2019, um, even before Sonia and I transitioned into co-director positions, we were um, organizing and, and, and we were part of a, of a year-long process um, in discussions with our members that um, kind of resulted in, in, in a kind of updated sort of narrative of, of the food worker movement, which mm-hmm. uh, would be put together in 2019. And, and, and what that essentially said uh, in the voice of our, our members was, you know, our work, our labor is essential and uh but you treat it as disposable and this is before the, they were given the label of essential in the right. yeah during covid uh but i think just to sort of critique that piece as well i, I don't i think that in 2019 when when the when the alliance members articulated that label for themselves as essential they didn't intend then for the government to have the right to label others as non-essential that labor is labor and uh, labor should be compensated for for the value that it brings to all all of society um and whether it's in the food economy or not um but what that sort of food worker narrative that that we um created together also said was that you know you know, this is the reality, and um, and this is the result of both corporate action as well as state action, and that in order for us to uh, make the impact that that needs to be made, um, change the practices of corporations and the practices of government, um, then we need to to build worker agency, and, mm-hmm, and what that mm-hmm. means is that we really um, need to not just us. Uh, but those, you know, who support um, food workers, who support low-wage workers, building worker agencies, supporting the growth of worker organization, whether that is like worker centers or unions or, 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 or workers' committees. Um, and, you know, I think that that doesn't just bring um, create the kind of agency needed to assert the rights of workers in the workplace. I think that we could see really interesting benefits for um, a larger movement to reform the food system. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, particularly food workers have this very kind of intimate connection um, to the systems uh, that could either be supporting our environment or hurting our our environment, right? And for food workers to kind of have agency um, in in how we develop our food systems could be quite beneficial for, for all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Sonia, do you have anything to add? It, it might just, you know, flowing into, I'm sure, what you might want to cover is that, th- that this moment has sort of really shown us that 
uh, the right to organize or agency, as Suzanne's describing it, is really the only way that uh, that food workers who are essential workers and have still have been on the job or are now returning to work are able sure. to, to to fight for sort of some basic standards. So I think that this frame around um, the right to organize was something that came out of our members pre-pandemic, but we're just seeing the evidence of whether it's meat processing workers who are being abandoned by the federal federal and state OSHA or departments of labor and right. having to take into their own hands to do petitions, to um, car caravans, to do legal strategies, lawsuits in order to just win basic health and safety protections on the ground right. or farm workers sharing testimonials of crowded bunkhouses that, that it's only through um, organizing in the workplace and organizing collectively that we're going to see that to, to answer your question is sort of what is what's the path to 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 build yeah. the kind of transformation we know we need to see, and we're seeing despite it being a very challenging time, a, a tragic time with needless infections and deaths, uh, layoffs, um, people being forced to make impossible choices. You know, we are seeing the spark of organizing in a way that yeah. um, that is an inspiration and it is a it's. It's a it's a path that it, it shows us a path Absolutely. forward. That that's really that what you said is very inspirational. And I you mentioned um, you know meat processing workers and and the Food Chain Workers Alliance recently filed a Title VI civil rights complaint uh, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture against Tyson Foods and JBS. And so you 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 both mentioned this idea and and this need for building worker agency, but when you know, there. You, when you have a racist system or immigration policies that prevent or discourage workers from, you know, taking, you know, making a fuss or, you know, uh, you know, filing complaints. How do we? How do we get past that? I mean, there, there are so many changes that need to happen, and you both mentioned them. That the government needs to change. You know, corporations need to change. Our, our civil rights, you know, laws need to change and be more inclusive and we need better, you know, protections for workers. How do we, again, it's, it's my question is always, and I don't mean to be repetitive, but I just, yeah, how do we get through all of these layers of, of, of racism and, you know, sort of powerlessness? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And, and, and I think that that, you know, Food Tank is one of our allies, and, and we have many allies in the movement. And, and I think that we're all kind of approaching it from um, uh, different viewpoints. I mean, even um, this complaint we to, at the USDA, we teamed up with other organizations in order to file that. I think, you know, from the perspectives of the alliance, just continuing on the same trajectory uh, from before, you know, we you know, we really sort of focus on um, building the, the, the capacity of workers to respond any way that they need to. In, sure. in the case of, uh, you know, meat processing and probably poultry industry where it's, you know, uh, they're located in these states that are very sort of anti-union and, 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 uh, and can be very racist and not that you can't be racist in other states, but in the context of uh, dealing with workers and so on and so uh oftentimes these legal strategies are are, are very very important um but we you know what we've also seen is that you know in discussions with our different sectors including restaurant sector and and uh you know uh warehouse sector and farm worker sector is that you know even when um 
we could get uh, some regulations on a state level, even when we can get some local laws around safe return to work for restaurant sure. workers, that nothing replaces collective sort of organizing by workers, yeah. what, whatever laws are on the book or whatever unions are there or not there. And I think that when we see examples of that, that we as an alliance try to support and try to uplift like the apple packers in um, Yakima Valley in Washington state, who or organized uh, to protect themselves um, by striking, right? That is, you know, a campaign like that, I think, you know, uh, is good at kind of exposing these levels, these, these levels of exploitation and oppression. And it also is good as sort of like modeling sort of like what is, what is possible. But it, it's not just, you know, we've also seen restaurant workers doing the same thing in like small coffee shops. So we, we've seen warehouse workers doing the same thing, not necessarily a strike, uh, but organizing collectively in, in like a local sure. warehouse. And, um, and I think each one of those efforts helps uh, for the workers themselves to expose these levels of exploitation. Um, and I think it, it, it is a priority for like how we approach uh, the problem, but we also recognize that we need to also involve those other strategies, right. like whether it's like lobbying for federal OSHA standards or um, employing legal strategies. Uh, but you know, as long as it's all grounded in in, in worker organizing, um, I think then it's it's helpful. Absolutely. And there's many ways that allies can, within the food movement and in sort of their broader public, can step up and support those initiatives. So we know that when people are in struggle and are there, there's the, the need for um, that kind of support is um, is critical when, when it was those those uh, strikes on the ground in Washington State that Suzanne was mentioning or wh whether it is uh, the warehouse workers, restaurant workers that are that that really need folks to be able to stand up and say, I support the food workers right. in my community, and the, right. I'm I'm behind these demands. Asking, um, you know, local employers uh, when there is a, a worker organizing drive right. in your community to say, like, I stand with. I'm not I'm not right. comfortable with you not respecting workers' rights in this example right. in this case. And then more broadly, you know, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, because our members emphasize, like, we just are, you know, our our members are not comfortable. In, are not confident in uh, filing OSHA complaints. We don't feel safe returning to these workplaces and there's this voluntary guidance is just not working that we have yeah. had an emphasis on calling for enforceable health and safety standards. And on our website, there's a lot of ways to support that campaign. Um, we were able to get to a certain degree of, of having uh, a bill that would compel OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard that would be mandatory for employers in the last um, relief package that has sort of stopped at the Senate and is yeah. part of, we hope, Senate negotiations. So there is a need for a push. But then at a state level, there's many states that are doing innovative strategies and we're, uh, you know, we're on the ground in many um, of those fights to try to win model legislation that, that other states can then replicate. And there's a role Absolutely. for governors, there's a role for state legislators as well. That's a really important point that a lot of this can start at the state, more local or regional level, and then trickle up to the federal level and in a really powerful way. And um, uh, I want to make sure that we give your website out now because you just mentioned how folks can help. So can you, one of you give the website out? 
Sure. It's uh, www.foodchainworkers.org. Awesome. Thank you. And and this idea of, you know, getting, you know, eaters, we call them eaters, but consumers, people who are, you know, buying these products that come from meat processing plants or from, you know, farm worker, uh, what farm workers have harvested. But when Baltimore uh, Velasquez was on the show from the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, he's like, the most powerful thing that consumers that eaters can do is, you know, boycott. And that, you know, that's always been a strategy. And he learned that, you know, working with Cesar Chavez. Is that still something that's relevant? today for you all, uh, encouraging folks to boycott different different companies? I, mean, I think that we take the lead from the workers organizing on the ground. And sometimes a boycott is the tactic or demand. And I'm sure as um, Valdemar and Flock have, have used it really effectively. And we, of course, know this, the legacy of the great boycott and, and that history of farm worker organizing in this country. So there's definitely moments when that is the call for action, but we also are really careful not to make that call if it's not what um, workers on the ground are, sure. are are asking for, because sometimes it might mean plant closures. It could mean, you know, and it's, it gets complicated because we could get into a whole discussion about <laughs> the way that these mega corporations are operating right. and, you know, do we want, actually want these kinds of industries in our communities, but at this, at sure. this moment, they're the source, main source of employment for lots of in lots of rural areas and and so certainly but certainly it's a it's a, a hugely powerful tool but also uh consumer pressure does can can look many um can take many different lenses and and you know we we know that these meat processing companies are feeling the pressure they're take they're spending millions of dollars right. to take out full page ads and um, yeah. you know they workers organizing is working but it's still there's still a lot more that we, you know, a lot farther that we need to go. If only they would spend millions of dollars on protecting workers instead of taking out those full page ads, you know, sort of protecting their their reputations. Um, it's it's baffling to me. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's most impressive about the Food Chain Workers Alliance to me is, you know, seeing you both. You know, I'm I'm a co-founder, um, and I work closely with my other co-founder, Bernie Pollock. And and this is a very sort of you, the way you work with workers is very you know, organic, you, you listen and you, the, the narrative that you told me uh, that you, that was created about what workers from all of these, I, I don't know if at that time it was 31 or the whole 33, you know, organizations who are part of the Alliance, that's unusual for so many, uh, you know, nonprofits working in this space. And so if you can talk about the, maybe both the successes and the challenges of, of working together as co-directors, and then we'll go to this audience question question that came up while I was being long-winded. Yeah, I, I think that, so Sonia and I have, have actually both been in the organization um, for about three years. Um, and I come from a labor and pub public interest law background and community organizing. And Sonia comes from a lot of farm worker organizing uh, um, as well as other things that she can talk about. And um, we were both uh, in the alliance uh, before we transitioned into co-director positions. And so, um, you know, we kind of, um, you know, uh, had a lot of time to, you know, build relationships with our members. And and, sure. um, and we find that this the co-director approach to, um, uh, to the work is, uh, very useful. Um, I, I know you don't see that a lot in nonprofit work, um, 
But I, I think that, you know, we see as like all all of our staff and like all of our members as contributing and and something and and um having you know uh having having you like equal value and and i think sure. that you know it's not so much the co-director position itself but like you know i think it's kind of like um cultivating um sort of uh a way of sort of working together that is sort of like you know um democratic and 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 kind of helps to really um elevate like what people's sort of strengths are and um and i, I think it kind of um has um helped us kind of approach this work in a way where you know we find ourselves i mean we became co-directors late last year and we found ourselves co-directors only a couple of months in before the pandemic began right and and you know we had to do a lot of work and accelerate a lot of work um with not a whole lot of capacity and we, sure. we were able to do that uh, because we spent a great deal of time cultivating um that kind of collaborative kind of uh workspace okay. and but also you know what we're really happy to say too is that during this during this time like members are as engaged as ever you know and and it's very time consuming to, to obviously to constantly be in communication uh, with our worker members and, um, and you know, but it has to kind of be, um, it has to be a priority. Or, or, Absolutely. Yeah, so, um, and, and you know, we're grateful for, um, for the chance to be able to do it. Sonia, do you wanna add anything to that? Yeah, that's a great summary. <laughs> No, and I mean, I think it's that I know how exhausted I, I can't imagine how exhausted the, the work that you do is. And it's it's I know how time consuming it is. But that that interaction with members, even, you know, the work that we do interaction with like our audience and, and the folks who reach out to us. It's so important. It's what invigorates us. And I imagine that's what invigorates you and keeps you going every day, even when it's a hard day. And, we, you know, every day is blurs day and we don't know, you know, what's going to happen next politically or health-wise with a, a lot of this. You, you, you know, Suzanne, you mentioned that you um, uh, have a lot of, of background in labor organizing and public interest law. That has to serve you well in this position, having that legal background. You know, it, it has. I, I didn't uh, join uh, the um, alliance with any kind of intention to necessarily use legal strategies or I... I I delve in law and in other spaces sometimes, but it, it has helped. And it, it has also, uh, like I, I belong to a legal association called the National Lawyers Guild, and we have a very active labor and employment committee. And like, it has kind of helped us sort of like expand our resources in terms of legal support. And um, and of course, you know, it, it, we, we also are doing a lot more policy work than I think you sure. are intended to do sure. and definitely my legal training is is useful in um being able to kind of filter and navigate through the policy world yeah absolutely and sonia i know you worked in canada uh for for a long time and i wonder you know there's so many some obviously similarities between you know uh, uh canada and the united states and and what you learned from that experience and how that's helped you with, with the alliance you're right that I think when we when I was in, in working in a worker center in Canada called the Workers Action Center and then also with one of our members, the, 
uh, Justice for Migrant Workers, who is now a, a member of the Food Chain Workers Alliance as well, that works with migrant farm workers, here we call um, guest workers, that you know we often look to the states to, to be examples of this sort of innovative food worker organizing. Mm -hmm. And of course that is true, but then um, as I've built more understanding of, of the strategies that our members take care, we realize like we're all just trying to figure it out and, and certainly um, uh, the, in, it, there's a, a similar context in Canada, but at the same time, there's a much stronger safety net, and um, there is also a, a, a really different context, immigration context of sort of who is doing farm work, and and so I feel a lot of our a lot of times our Canadian members, um, and specifically Justice for Migrant Farm Workers, who have been organizing with H2A workers, the equivalent in Canada for. Um, because though that is the main community doing farm work in Canada has mm -hmm. a lot to kind of help in guiding us and understanding of that sort of layer of of, um, of who is growing food and and how we think about strategies to empower uh, farm leaders and of course um, there's many our farm worker members in the U.S. are very uh, have have had some incredible wins and and also are you know engaging with some of these questions in, in really important and really great ways as well. So yeah, I was just on a phone call actually with that member, uh, nice. with farm worker leaders last night and listening to the advocacy they're doing in their communities where there have been massive outbreaks in greenhouses, um, in overcrowded housing, and, and a, a lot of ways that is showing us what will happen here if we are not able to take the measures that we know are necessary of, of sure. you know, in New York State. And many other regions, the harvest is beginning in certain crops just now, and we need to be taking these measures. We are in part of a campaign to fight for enforceable health and safety standards in New York State, and they absolutely have to look at what's happened in these kinds of outbreaks in Canada to ensure that we don't have that same um, tragedy happen here. Um, so, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of exchange and learning that kind of across borders is, is really helpful. Yeah, it seems so valuable to learn from what other countries are doing. And we didn't mention Mexico, but I'm sure that you're learning from what's happening in Mexico as well. And and that vigilance that's needed to really protect farm workers and, and see sort of what's down, you know, down the line if you don't make these changes now. We, we've talked a lot about COVID, but, you know, eventually this pandemic will end if everyone wears their masks and stay safe and, and you know, social distances. Um, but I, I'm wondering, you know, post-pandemic, and hopefully that's very soon, uh, what, what essential tasks and changes are, are do you, do you foresee? So you have a, you know, you're a small organization with a very big voice uh, and, and a lot of members, but what do you, ha what's your strategy for, for 2021 when we come out, I hope knocking on wood, the other side of this, whoever wants, whichever of you wants to go first. Sorry, I put you both on the spot all the time. <laughs> well, I, I think our strategy uh above all is again to continue to um you know in, in, engage as much as possible with our member yeah. organizations and create opportunities for them to continue to engage with each other and work collectively um as well as support their kind of individual efforts um i i think that um you know we we will continue to be engaged on uh policy level both in labor immigration and, and food system policy again um, doing that in a way that's as grounded in our, our member base as possible. Um, but I think if we, if we were going to just kind of um, describe uh, like what our general framework is going forward in, in, for the following year, 
it's it's around this theme that we've already mentioned around the right to organize. Like what, right. what are the like and how do we um, protect uh, workers' right to organize, not just legally speaking, but also practically speaking. Because even in places where you know the the laws are very good as far as rights for workers or farm workers to organize. The barriers, uh, because of these kind of uh, because of structural racism and exploitation, mm. uh, the barriers to actually asserting that right are are are, are very strong, um, and so that's kind of um, you know the the question that we're asking uh, with our members and, and our allies is that like well then how do we um, challenge those barriers and change that reality, um, and. Um, you know, I, I think maybe it might be interesting. I don't know. Any in, in a year, we, we can like bring some of our like our member leaders and Sonia and I to talk about. Well, how has that? <laughs> That'd be great. On? Yeah. Um, so it'll be a combination of strategies, as, as we were talking about before, like legal policy and organizing. So powerful. That legal angle is something I know you're doing so much and we're running out of time, but you're doing so much on the policy side right now that it's very, very inspiring. And this, you know, this idea of the right to organize and not be fearful, that is something that all of us as eaters really need to get our minds around and 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 uh, help support what organizations like you are doing, but especially support the Food Chain Workers Alliance. I want to give out your website again. It's foodchainworkers.org. I'm assuming I mean, you can donate there, Suzanne and Sonia. That's great. Um, you're one of my favorite organizations, so I'll be uh, making another donation later today. Um, I, I'd like to end on, on something really positive. And, and because you both talk to workers all the time, um, is there any sort of, you know, these are folks who are going through a really rough time, but still going to work, still supporting their families. Is there something you, you can share with us, a story or an anecdote or a quote or that, that you've heard from the ground? Um, I mean, I, I could just sh- share that, for example, uh, the, the women that I was on a phone with last night who are Thai and um, Mexican and uh, Jamaican women who are leaders in their community who fought their own uh, fights to win status, immigration status, to change conditions in their workplaces are now supporting the next generation, you know, the next group of migrant workers that are working in these greenhouses in Southern Ontario to have uh, the hours that they were promised on these temporary contracts to ensure that they have extra um, premium pay. And they won that when they went public uh, with a major greenhouse grower a couple of uh, months ago. That was a a really, even though it's one greenhouse that these are massive workplaces, it just shows that when women leaders, and these are women of color, immigrant workers, come together, they, they are able to lift up, not just for themselves, but for their whole, uh, you know, community. And, and now they are in this process of thinking about how they are going to fight for more and what are the ways to take on the next challenges, workers that are in quarantine that still have inadequate housing. Um, so I think that gives me so much inspiration to see when people are, when we invest in food workers leadership and yeah. really support that frame of organizing is the way that we're going to to transform the conditions that people themselves are identifying and identifying the solutions that we see step-by-step wins that take us to the bigger wins. So that that was very inspiring to me last night. That's really great. Suzanne, any stories you want to share? No pressure. Um, 
No, I mean, when Sonia was talking, I mean, what really comes to mind is is, is the same thing, thinking of, um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of actions in New York around supporting the New York Heroes Bill. And um, just to sort of see uh, work, worker leaders come out, like who were working in laundromats and restaurants and like who've had COVID and who've recovered and who've like threatened or fired and just to kind of like as you said like break break that fear and are able to kind of really you know um propel their leadership forward in order to inspire other workers to do the same is um always rejuvenates us that's great that's wonderful it's been such uh i've learned so much during this conversation you both are so inspiring i i love the food chain workers alliance i'm just going to give out the website one more one more time so folks will have it foodchainworkers.org um a reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast food talk with danny nirenberg and i hope folks will join us on our next live cast when uh I will uh, be moderating a discussion between food author Michael Pollan, Paul Willis of Nyman Ranch Port Company, Don Sherman of Tonka Bar and Native American Natural Foods. Um, you can find out more information about signing up for this uh, live webcast on uh, the Nyman Ranch website and we'll have it available uh, at foodtank.com. Sonia and Suzanne, no one deserves a, a, a happy and restful Labor Day weekend than you both, but I, I know you'll both be working. So, but thank you so much for joining me today and, and happy Labor Day to you both. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for all the ongoing support. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.